All right, we're back. Let's talk a little bit more about water. Excellent article by Matt Weiser about uh, water skullduggery. Writing in the Sacramento Bee on the 15th of October, Matt noted that construction officially began last Thursday on an underground pipeline linking the two massive canals that export water from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. The $28 million project will provide a means to move water between the state California Aqueduct and the federal government's Delta-Mendota Canal, both of which divert water from the Delta at points near Tracy. The canals come to within 500 feet of each other near the intersection of Interstates 580 and 205, which is where the intertie will be built. Environmental groups have been concerned about the project for years because they see it as a means to export more water from the already stressed Delta environment. Matt Weiser goes on to note that the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, the project's lead sponsor, maintains that the intertie will allow its existing pumping capacity to be used only when environmental rules permit full pumping and will allow greater flexibility to deliver water between the state and federal systems. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call double talk. Said Interior Secretary Ken Salazar, the guy that thinks deep water drilling should be resumed, Guy's just full of good ideas, apparently. Linking these two canals by a new underground pipeline and pumping plant will improve water supply reliability in a part of California hardest hit by dry conditions and loss of jobs. Yeah, I guess like in Southern California where it's always dry conditions. Salazar said these pearls of wisdom at an 11 a.m. groundbreaking ceremony attended by both state and federal politicians. Keep in mind the Chamber of Commerce in California wants to add 20 million more people in the San Joaquin Valley and in parts of Southern California. To do this, they need to take water out of the Delta. Well, it may not be the Chamber of Commerce is going to do this, but they're certainly all for letting real estate speculators and developers have at it. It seems to me that we have just barely enough water to go around as it is before we add enough people to you know, equal the whole state of New York, we will continue to monitor the California water grab. Speaking of fighting over resources, how about this item from China? Shades of John Dalton and Dmitry Medvedev, it turns out that an obscured chunk of the periodic table is the focus of the latest dispute over the Earth's resources. China is apparently blocking exports of rare Earth elements to Japan. If you look at your periodic table, you'll find a row of 14 of these rare earth elements at the bottom of the table. They include yttrium, scandium, and the whole row of elements, which is known as the lanthanides. These elements show up in computer hard drives, catalytic converters, wind turbines, hybrid cars, sunglasses, and lasers. China has 30% of the world's rare earth element reserves, yet accounts for 97% of the market. Does this mean we're going to have conflict over rare earth elements? Well, you never know. Remember in the old Star Trek, they were always looking for rare earths on various uh, planetary bodies out there. And no, Mr. McMillan, dilithium crystals are not part of the rare earth elements and are not on the periodic table. Lithium, however, is element number three. Speaking of quirky science, I don't know why this was a big headline and grabbed people's attention, but apparently studies have shown that, hold on to, the, hold on to your hat, Tyrannosaurus Rex may have been a cannibal. Yay. 
Yes, apparently researchers studying the marks on the bones of fossilized Tyrannosaurus rex indicate that perhaps they'd been chewed upon by other Tyrannosauri. I don't know. As they say, parts is parts. Speaking of fossilized parts, apparently down in Madera, California, which you've probably been to as you went south of Merced and before you got to Fresno, a museum has opened up which is displaying uh, what's believed to be the largest fossil deposit site on the West Coast. The museum had a grand opening uh, last week. It's called the Fossil Discovery Center of Madera County, and uh, it opened up on what I guess was also National Fossil Day, which as far as we know was not named after the late Strom Thurmond. In fact, the museum displays fossils found at the Fairmead County Landfill, which is just across the street. They started finding fossils back in May of 1993 when workers spotted some unusual coloration in the soil. That turned out to be the complete fossil of a Colombian mammoth tusk from an animal that roamed the San Joaquin Valley 500,000 years ago. They apparently set out to excavate for six weeks, and the excavation ended up taking 17 years whereupon they recovered 15,000 fossils from the landfill. Animals found have included horses, camels, llamas, rabbits, saber-toothed cats, as well as rodents and reptiles. And you can bet that Radio Parallax is going to go down and check this out before the next, uh, next few months are up. And yes, Mr. McMillan, the saber-toothed cat means the saber-toothed tiger. Yes, and since you played the Flintstones, I would hasten to point out that man did coexist with the saber-toothed tiger. Well, at least chronologically, there weren't any people in the New World when saber-toothed cats were strolling about. But people certainly interacted with mammoths and mastodons and flightless birds, etc. But not the dinosaurs. No matter what they tell you in museums in Kentucky. And speaking of fossils, curious article in New Scientist magazine, October 2nd issue, about how the legendary Leonardo da Vinci has one more feather in his cap, apparently. He correctly interpreted what fossils were back in the 1400s. Turns out the origin of fossils was a subject of fierce debate back in da Vinci's time. Although the Greeks understood that seashells embedded in rocks were the remains of prehistoric creatures deposited on the floor of a sea once, that once covered the land, that idea had been lost with the collapse of their civilization. By the time of the Renaissance, most scholars were confounded by shells and rocks. There were two main theories. One claimed that shells were inorganic structures which had grown spontaneously within the rock. The other theory claimed that the, they were the remains of sea creatures deposited on mountaintops during the Great Flood described in the Bible about Noah, etc. Da Vinci deduced correctly that uh, they couldn't be uh, inorganic materials mimicking animals in the rock because he could see the growth layers in the shells and how could you grow once you were embedded in rock. He also figured out that the fossils were found in different layers so they couldn't have been laid down during one catastrophic flood. Da Vinci apparently also deduced correctly that some of the tracks found in the rocks uh, in Italy were the results of worms that crawled through the mud that was not yet dry. Pretty smart guy, ahead of his time on one more thing that we know about. 
Anyway, let's uh, let's backtrack into politics for a second. It, it isn't bad enough, I guess, that the Obama administration is giving the green light to going back to doing deep water drilling and seems to be all in favor of linking up state and federal water projects to steal yet more water from the Delta. But last week, as reported by Kevin Yamamura in the Sacramento Bee, a letter to former Drug Enforcement Administrators was made public wherein U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder said that prosecution of marijuana crimes is a, quote, core priority, unquote, of the Department of Justice and would remain so regardless of whether Proposition 19 passes here in California. Okay, now, exactly why did they vote out uh, the Republicans in 2008? I'm, I'm getting kind of hazy on this. Holder, we will vigorously enforce the CSA against those individuals and organizations that possess, manufacture, or distribute marijuana for recreational use, even if such activities are permitted under state law. CSA refers to the Federal Controlled Substance Act. She's got some backup by the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court in 2005 ruled that federal officials could prosecute medical marijuana activities regardless of state legalization. I seem to recall, as, as pointed out by Kevin Yamamura, that the Obama administration said last year it would not prosecute medical marijuana in states where it is legal. But I guess uh, the drug enforcement industrial complex people <laughs> got to Eric Holder and President Obama to uh, make them send a message out to California. Tell you, even, uh, even Bruce Maiman, a former conservative radio host for, he used to broadcast on KFBK, put an editorial in the B on October 15th saying that to reduce drug use, you need to get rid of drug laws. Said Bruce Maiman in the editorial, Prop 19 opponents counter with gateway warnings and tales of the reefer madness kind. All nine former heads of the Drug Enforcement Administration have come out in opposition, calling upon U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to block the bill if approved by voters in November. He goes on to note that, meanwhile, flaws in Prop 19 might give pause among even those who support legalization. And uh, such a list was actually put into the Humor Times by our old pal James Israel. You may want to check those out. We're going to talk about Prop 19 in our pre-election show next week. But I'm going to quote more from Bruce Maiman. He asks, with a fair enough question, Who benefits from drug enforcement? Pot busts accounted for more than half of all drug arrests last year. That's according to FBI data. And 88% were for possession. He noted that in 2001, Portugal officially abolished all criminal penalties for personal possession of drugs, including marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. These are the most liberal drug laws in Europe. Within five years, drug use among teenagers dropped, as did HIV infections caused by dirty needles. I have a feeling, dear listener, that a lot of people that are really opposed to the legalization of drugs are the people that profit the most from its current status as illegal, much as in places like Tennessee, you can still find dry counties, which are generally supported by two people. The ministers, who think that on moral grounds, people shouldn't be drinking anyway, and the bootleggers, who make money distributing the illegal booze. And speaking of a crazy kind of psychology, and, and don't you just love these segues? Curious point-counterpoint in New Scientist October 2nd issue over whether psychoanalysis was worthy of a place in London's Science Museum. Robert Budge said, of course it is. His opening sentence on the argument was, the Science Museum has never set itself up as a gatekeeper, deciding what is science and what is not. You know, in an odd kind of way, that reminds me of what Jerry Jeff Walker once said after he was beat up by cowboys. 
said, you guys ain't so tough. I've been beat up way worse than this by motorcycle gangs. Speaking somewhat more coherently and persuasively was Mario Bunge, who said, certainly not, whom I cannot resist quoting from, said, Mr. Bunge, we should congratulate the Science Museum for setting up an exhibition on psychoanalysis. Exposure to pseudoscience greatly helps understand genuine science, just as learning about tyranny helps in understanding democracy. He goes on. Over the past 30 years, psychoanalysis has quietly been displaced in academia by scientific psychology, but it persists in popular culture as well as being a lucrative profession. It is the psychology of those who have not yet bothered to learn psychology and the psychotherapy of choice for those who believe in the power of immaterial mind over body. Psychoanalysis is a bogus science because its practitioners do not do scientific research. When the field turned 100, a group of psychoanalysts admitted this gap and endeavored to fill it. They claimed to have performed the first experiment, the first experiment, showing that patients benefited from their treatment. Regrettably, they did not include a control group and did not entertain the possibility of placebo effects. He goes on. In 110 years, psychoanalysts have not set up a single lab. They do not participate in scientific congresses, do not submit their papers to scientific journals, and are foreign to the scientific community, a marginality typical of pseudoscience. This does not mean their hypotheses have never been put to the test. True, they are so vague that they are hard to test, and some of them, by Freud's own admission, are irrefutable. Still, most of the testable ones have been soundly refuted. For example, most dreams have no sexual content. The Oedipus complex is a myth. Boys do not hate their fathers because they would like to have sex with their mothers. The list goes on. Psychoanalysis is a pseudoscience. Its concepts are woolly and untestable, yet are regarded as unassailable axioms. As a result of such dogmatism, psychoanalysis has remained basically stagnant for more than a century, in contrast with scientific psychology, which is thriving. And to quote Edward McMillan, there's only a one-letter difference between Freud and fraud. Unless you remain unconvinced by Mr. Bunge's diatribe, we would refer you to the Vanity Fair current issue on the stands, November 2010, to their article about Marilyn Monroe, who apparently had no less than four different psychoanalysts during her career. You know, I don't think I want to completely bag on psychoanalysis because over the years it has provided some fine, fine material for the cartoons in The New Yorker. Such as the one where the man is sitting on the psychoanalyst couch and the practitioners next to him with, you know, obligatory goatee and glasses. His careful analysis written on the page of that notebook is just plain nuts. And speaking of just plain nuts, and I'm going to keep this up as long as I can, there's some people here in the greater Sacramento area that think it'd be a swell idea to build a giant arena for the benefit of Las Vegas billionaires. So the article by Matt Kawahara in the Sacramento Bee caught my eye. Showed a picture of a rather fetching Adrian Maloof, sister of Joe and Gavin, owners of our local basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. I need to quote from this article too, I think. The headline is, Beverly Hills star Maloof sees herself as good example. Good example of what, you might ask? Well, apparently 
co-owner of Maloof Companies, philanthropist, martial arts trainee, mother of three, reality TV star, and so much more. Evidently, Adrian can now be seen on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, the latest installment of the Bravo Network's popular reality series, which premiered last week. Apparently, Adrian Maloof has already appeared in another Bravo reality show, Dr. 90210, which features her husband, Beverly Hills plastic surgeon Paul Nassif. Now, you'd think these glamorous, wonderful, wealthy people would be able to spend their own money to build a public arena, wouldn't you? Well, I would. By the way, that opinion, like all heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. Some of whom, we have to admit, may watch The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Then again, we just don't know. And speaking of the crazy world of sports, these San Francisco Giants are in danger of backing themselves into a World Series. Anyway, I can't say as I'm a baseball fan anymore, as my friend Michael loves to point out. You really haven't forgiven the Giants for trading away Willie Mays, have you? And the answer to that is, Michael, no, I have not. How can you trade away Willie Mays? Anyway, Marcos Bretone's reporting is, uh, has been prominently featured on the sports page of the Sacramento Bee. He earned a place in uh, Ken Burns' 10th inning, which I hope you caught. Even non-fans like myself uh, find uh, Ken Burns' specials to be something really extraordinary, including the one on baseball. And it was kind of cool that years after he did uh, nine innings, which summarized the history of baseball, he added a 10th inning to update things since then. Pretty good program. And uh, Marcos Bertone got to come on and talk about uh, what a crushing disappointment the Giants have been year in and year out. The last time they won a World Series was 1954, when they were the New York Giants. But I got to admit, I'm going to pull for him against the damn Philadelphia Phillies, based if nothing else, upon the picture that was uh, in the B reprinted from the Contra Costa Times showing uh, Tim Lincecum walking back to the dugout and this ugly array of fat, smug Philadelphia Philly fans holding up signs like, This guy stinks! Hippie trash! Anyway, these bunch of fat jerks sitting up at the stands holding up, Want to smoke? Fix your teeth? Giants, beat the hell out of them. And on that happy note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Say hey, fellas. What's your name? Say who? Say Willie. Say hey. Say who? Swinging at the plate. Say hey. Say who? Say Willie. That giant kid is great. When he hits the ball, it's long gone man. Hits it farther than camp began. Swings the bats like a little lead pipe. When they reach the ball, it's overripe. Say hey, say who? Say Willie, say hey, say who? Swinging at the plate, say hey, say who? Say Willie, that giant kid is great. He runs the bases like a choo-choo train. Swings around second like an aeroplane. Cap flies off when it passes third And he heads home like an evil 